and it's not just like an opinion or a belief. I could give you a whole string of citations if you want. Um, but like we know what good learning can look like and what's required. And yet that's not always what's happening. Well, hey again, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, your host, and in this, our 47th episode, I spend some time talking with Dr. Beth Holland, whose recent doctoral dissertation covered one of my absolute favorite topics, the importance of having shared language when we're trying to make change happen in our schools. Now, I'm not kidding when I say this was one of my favorite conversations on this podcast series so far, and I know you're going to enjoy her thoughts on leadership, on how great learning happens on changing practice in schools, and a whole lot more. Just a reminder, this podcast is brought to you by Change School, an intensive online professional learning opportunity for global leaders who are looking to reimagine the experience of schools for their students. You can get all the details about cohort number six, which starts on September 19th at change.school. And don't forget that Modern Learners Labs are coming to a town near you, and you can check out our latest dates and places at modernlearners.com labs. And as always, if you like what you hear today, please consider heading over to iTunes and giving us a thumbs up and even a review. We would greatly appreciate it. But for now, here's my conversation with the newly minted Dr. Beth Holland. Enjoy, everyone. Glad to have you here with me today, Beth. Thanks really for having appreciate me. it. And congratulations. Yay. Yay. <laughs> you yeah. finally pushed that boulder over the top of the hill, huh? Yeah. So how long were you working on your on your PhD? Um, so it was a like a three-year sprint. Yeah. Um, and so the program I was in was like the whole idea was an applied doctorate. And so it was you hit the ground running on day one and start writing your dissertation when you have no idea what you're doing. So yeah. it's the that whole idea about like building the plane and flying it definitely yeah. works. And then you start like swapping out wings halfway through. So. Well, that's a learning experience in and of itself. Ooh, it was but, definitely a learning experience. But um, congratulations on, on hitting the finish line. So, so I'm, I'm really interested in what you were working on too, because um, you know, actually we got this conversation started. You sent me an email a couple of days ago talking about, uh, or asking me a little bit about the adjective in front of the noun, which is yeah. you know, noun learning, which is something I talk about a lot. And, I think uh, the language that we use in education, especially around change, is is really crucial, and that there really isn't a lot of coherence. And you know, shock of all shocks, that's kind of what your <laughs> your dissertation found Funny. as well. So I thought, yeah. well, this would be a great chance for us to have a little bit of a conversation, and also sure. to go a little bit deeper into that topic, which hopefully other people will find <laughs> interesting. But even if no one listens, I know I'm going to enjoy the next half hour, forty five minutes. So. <laughs> Um, you know, why don't you, why don't you just start with a brief overview of, of what your question was and, and what your work was around and how you went about it, and then we'll dive a little bit more deeply into some of your results. Sure. Yeah. So the question, I guess there's almost two pieces coming into play. The question actually evolved because I'm working on a new article for Edutopia, um, and I pitched the article to my editor because I was in a conversation and someone said to me, well, how would you explain the difference between like blended learning and personalized learning and I think differentiated learning? And that was what brought me back to the idea of like, why do we keep putting labels on everything? Um, and so that was when I reached out to you again and said, where was your post on the adjective? Because I was working, I've been working with this idea of one of the challenges I think we have within education is we're constantly putting labeling labels on things but we don't really know what the labels mean. 
And that also connects in to what I found in my studies over the last few years is, you know, we like to use lots of terms. And I remember being really excited when I found out that in the research space, the idea of a buzzword is actually positive because a buzzword means that there's lots of keywords and people have written about it and there's research behind it. Um, but at the same time, I think within sort of our practitioner education space, we don't necessarily spend the time really richly defining those terms. And so as I was looking big picture at what are the challenges around change? You know, why is it that you might have a single school within a district or a handful of just amazing classrooms inside of a school, but what prevents that system-wide change from really happening? Right. And, you know, there's plenty of different underlying causes and factors, but one of them that I really honed in on was this idea of language, where we don't really share this language of what it is that we even mean. And if we say, I, I mean, pick a term. I don't even care what it is half the time. Like, is it blended or personalized or differentiated? There's so, there's so few to pick from that you really have to think about it, right? Yeah, just, <laughs> I mean, pick I mean everywhere, right? Yeah. They're just um, new and every day. Right. Like, I just, but to actually have it where you can wrap your head around it and where everybody in the building understands what it means and it becomes actionable. Right. And that was the piece that I found was really missing. Um, and it's, it's few and far between where I've seen it working really well. I looked at international studies. That was um, one, of the, one of the things that really tipped me off was looking at international systems, really high-performing ones. And I'm not talking about high-performing based on test scores. I'm talking about high-performing based on policy that embraces like authentic context, authentic work, assessment that goes beyond a test score. Um, high performing in terms of a real level of professionalism among the teaching sector. Who knew that those were options for high performing, right? They are. Um, <laughs> there's a fascinating report that came out last fall from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Wait, did I that right? Yeah, uh, Economist Intelligence Unit, which is this nonpartisan think tank, kind of part of like the Economist magazine. Mm -hmm. And they deconstructed 35 different world systems not based on outputs, but based on inputs. So, you know, what's the policy? What's the teaching sector look like? And then this was an interesting one. What is the like socio-political context? So like the openness of society, you know, does it value free speech? Does it value independent thinking? Um, and they said, we want to look at what goes into school versus what's coming out because those standardized measures aren't necessarily telling us what we really need to know for the future. And that language piece, it, it just keeps coming back of how do we make sure that everyone is holding these same ideas and same values and cultures and norms and beliefs and, you know, a real, you know, it is, it's a language of a profession. And I think if you go back to like the days of apprenticeships and they talked about this, like within real professional teaching sectors, there's like an apprentice program where the role of an apprenticeship was so the apprentice could learn the language of the practitioner, whether they were, you know, a blacksmith or um, someone working on a printing press or I don't know, anything else, you, uh, upholsterer, you know, you learn the language and the culture and the norms of the profession. And that's what's happening in these really high performing places. And that's by having that common language, you can communicate, you can collaborate, you can share, you can start making decisions based on that foundation. And if we just throw terms around, we don't really know what those mean. Right. Um, 
That's, that's fascinating too, because there's an element of, I'm not sure this is the right word, but exactness to that language too, right? When you're an apprentice, obviously you have to have the fairly exact same meaning in terms of what you're talking about. And, you know, in my work with schools, I think you'd probably agree. We don't do a great job of that just in general. Um, I've been, I'm always fascinated by just even the word learning. And, you know, this is my, mm-hmm. you know, my big thing yeah. right? but to go into schools and just ask a random assortment of people how they define that word. Mm-hmm. You hardly ever get any coherence around that. And you would think that would be the easy one for us, right? Yeah. And well, it's almost like how I was in a conversation, um, back in, I don't know, April, I think, with, um, with Ray Rose. I don't know if you've ever met Ray. I was his intern in like 1999, just to date myself, when he was at the Concord Consortium. And I bumped into him in a conference and we were talking and he just put me on the spot for a second. And he said, what do we know about successful learning? Like, what does great learning look like? And I said, well, you know, it's social, it's active. People are, you know, working together. They're constructing new meaning. And we both looked at each other and thought, well, if we know this so clearly, where's the problem? Because we, and it's not just like an opinion or a belief. I could give you a whole string of citations if you want. Um, but like we know what good learning can look like and what's required. And yet that's not always what's happening. Right. Um, and it's, it's just gratifying to hear you say that because um, with a research space behind it, I know, but I think a lot of that is intuitive too, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, my, my sense of it is, is that you say those things to people that it's, you know, it has to have relevance, it has mm-hmm. to have passion, there has to be, you know, there's no time constraints, all that kind of stuff. And people just kind of nod their heads and go, yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly yeah. right. That's what it looks like. But then you walk into classrooms and basically you see a whole bunch of stuff that, that people never say when you ask them what learning is about, you know, like sitting in rows and no choice and really motivated by grades and all that stuff. So it, it is fascinating because I don't think many people in education don't know what real learning looks like. But the problem is, um, how do you manifest that in classrooms? So you were nice enough to send me some kind of highlights of your dissertation. And one of them, you talked about the fact that one of the problems with school leaders is that they really don't have kind of that frame for what learning looks like because they have these existing models in their heads that, you know, that may basically maybe didn't really comport to what learning looks like. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So one of the things that I did when I was looking at deeply trying to understand the problem. And I think that was the advantage of the way our research was structured. And we spent an entire year doing nothing but trying to understand the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, when does that ever happen? And from multiple perspectives. So like from a historical perspective and a sociological perspective and anthropological perspective. Um, So one of the things, if we think about it, um, think about schools like an ecology, you know, like a pond or something, right? There's lots and lots of forces that allow that ecology to happen. And so when I started looking at it, I realized there's an entire like socio-historical influence that has driven us to create these like mental models of what we think school is. And, you know, there's like the oversimplified like factory model, which is a gross oversimplification if we trace it all the way back. There's a lot of historical precedents, you know, that Schools were established to meet certain needs, whether it was enculturation, whether it was protection of, I mean, the common school and Horace Mann. I mean, it was the rise of urbanization and a protection of like these Protestant ideals um, with an influx of immigrants. Like 
that was before factories. Um, you know, there was the principles of scientific management. All of this history started to form the organizational culture of school. And then it became institutionalized. And so once it's institutionalized, everyone's got this mental model. And they're like, okay, this is what real school looks like. Um, Larry Cuban calls it the grammar of school. And I love that phrase. You know, like, this is what it is. Um, but what happens is when that becomes the mental model, and then if you think about how people learn, people learn because they take their prior experience and then they start to build off of it. So we're all essentially, as educators, we're enculturated into this mental model of school starting when we're like five. And now suddenly we're saying, okay, I know everything that you've always thought to be true. Okay, I'm going to like pull the cord on that. <laughs> and none of that actually is true anymore. And I'm telling you right now that all of that is wrong. And if when that happens, it's like psychological crisis time, right? Because right? yeah. we basically said the model doesn't work. So one of the things I started looking at was how do we create these opportunities for school leaders and for teachers to learn how to make new models, but in like a low threat environment. Because you don't want to basically say, hey, everything you know is wrong, even if you really, really want to. Because can I, can I, just, can I just stop you there yeah. for a sec? So, so that's, a, that's a really, really scary statement to make, right? right. And, and so is it that everything you know is wrong in terms of it doesn't really, again, comport to how learning happens? Because a lot of people will say, well, it's working. I mean, look at me, I, you know, it worked right. for me. I'm, you know, I went through school and I've got a good job and, you know, I'm happy. I've got two kids in a car mm -hmm. and whatever else, right? So, I mean, there's a, in a lot of ways yeah. it works. Right. Is, is the tension that really the model doesn't comport to learning? So I think the model doesn't comport to learning today. Got it. Now, okay. the model worked great for a really long time. Um, I'm going to keep my researcher hat on for a second and like quote people. Um, but there was, there was a great article. It was a 2010 article from Alan Collins and I don't know Halverson's first name, but Richard. 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 Yeah. Okay. And they make this statement where they say, unlike anything that's ever come into the system of school, digital technology fundamentally threatens like all the tenets and structures on which schools mm -hmm. and administrators base their identity. Because all of a sudden, Things like age-based grading, you have to learn inside the walls of the school. There's only one expert. It all has to be the same right. piece. Those tenets were essentially undermined. So there are, if we, I mean, it's funny, like we're talking about, oh, students should learn. It should be active and social and all of this. I mean, we can trace those theories back to Socrates. Right. That's not new. It's just the idea that as an institutionalized system, we need to recognize those principles and like the lockstep, everybody learns at the same thing, everybody's in the rows, everybody frankly has to go to a school. Um, I read a great article yesterday, I can't remember now where, about a student who had been homeschooled all the way up to their senior year of high school oh, wow. and then went to high school. And the reflection was, this is the most inefficient system I've ever right. been part of. Yeah. The uh, just just real fast the uh, yeah. that Colin Collins Halverson book which I mm -hmm. think the title of it is rethinking schools in an era of technology mm -hmm. or something like that that was one of the first books that I read that kind of made my brain really melt right yeah. about about what an impact that this was going to have and and they have some some fairly uh, depressing conclusions in that book yeah. that you know <laughs> if we don't basically figure this out and if we right. don't really begin to move a lot of agency over to learners in our classrooms, 
that we're going to end up with schools being um, the place where kids without a choice go mm -hmm. and everyone else is going to opt out into something different. So um, it's a pretty profound read, but some one that I think is, is really important. So, so how do you do that then? So how do you get people who have mm -hmm. this image or this narrative kind of mm -hmm. seeded into their experience? How do you get them to break out of that? Um, given the, the, the fear that goes yeah. along with that, um, how does that happen? So I think there's, there are a couple of different things that I was playing with in my research. Um, so the first one is I went back to the work from Jean-Paul Guy, who talks a lot about gaming and learning as experience. Mm -hmm. And he makes a statement where he says, what makes a great learning experience is that you know, the experience is meaningful to the user. And then there's a guide who helps you notice what's really important to learning. And so one of the strategies for doing that is using somebody else's practice as a way to start having these conversations and models. So I was working with a group back in Massachusetts, or in Massachusetts back in May, and we, were, we looked at three different video clips. And the whole idea as they were studying these clips, and I kept thinking about this as myself, um, how am I helping them to notice what they need to notice? Mm -hmm. So that we can start to, again, have these mental models on which to build that experience. Um, and there's, I think there's a lot with the ideas of maybe, you know, gamification or design challenges and problems where we can give somebody something that's small and not threatening to build an experience and then deconstruct it. Um, I've been using the Extraordinaires game, which is a design-based game. It's car like physical card game mm -hmm. because, you know, very few people have like a ninja, a mermaid, and an, an alien space invader in their classroom. So, <laughs> Nobody can get caught on, that's not where my school is. But to be able to create different scenarios around those things that take the threat away from it. Um, the other piece I've been using a lot is the work from Jane Kyes. And she talks about this idea of how do we make sure that we're looking for the balance in the system. And the way she does that is she says, we have to make sure we really identify what is the greater purpose of what we're trying to achieve. And I think that's something that gets missed a lot. Like we go straight into, you know, is it technology? Is it not? Is it, you know, project-based learning or something else? We start debating those words without taking that step back and saying, well, what's really that greater purpose and how does everything align to that greater purpose? So I guess that's the question too, right? So is a change in the mental model around practice, is that sustainable without the larger purpose without the larger kind of belief system and mission and you know vision that, that goes along with that because i think sometimes people want to be very very practical and mm -hmm. and i you know i love your feedback on this but in our work what we really try to do is pull people back to those foundational conversations first mm -hmm. so that when they do begin to implement things in classrooms they kind of have it's it's rooted in at least a, a, a you know, different way of thinking, or at least a more relevant way of thinking about learning. I mean, what do you think about that? I think, so I think you get, I've, what I've found is that people get stuck. There's like the chicken and the egg. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I don't know what I don't know. And so sometimes there needs to be that initial experience on which they can then go back and have the conversation. And I think one of the challenges is figuring out where is the group to have the initial experience. Because to jump right in and say, okay, let's talk about the purpose. If I'm having that conversation, but my thinking is framed in my existing ideas, it's almost like you try to, to tame the new idea. 
right? I'm going to try and take the new idea and fit it into institutional structures. And so sometimes it's like, well, how do I break those institutional structures first and say, okay, let's drop what we know for a minute. What do we think it could be? And then work backwards. So I'm agreeing with you. I think it's really going to depend on your audience too. Um, you know, there's some groups that I did. <laughs> I was with a group of independent school leaders and I asked them a question of like, what are the images that come to mind when you think of school? And these were really innovative independent school leaders. And the things they gave me just right off the bat kind of blew my brain because they'd already taken that step. Whereas if I asked a different group one time, I got a lot more of the standard responses I was expecting, you know, books, chalkboard, teacher, desks. Mm -hmm. um, so I think almost a litmus test first, like where are we? Right. And then figuring out where do we need to go from there? Yeah, definitely. Everybody's on a different point in a continuum, mm -hmm. uh, depending on how many conversations they've had, depending on how many different learning experiences they've had. And I think that's another thing you pointed out is that really one way for leaders to um, to, to kind of move through that is to experience learning in the ways that are possible now and in the, in the same ways that, that kids really experience it, those non-school learning types of experiences. So is that something that you kind of push leaders and push educators into those types of spaces as well, or would that be a good idea? I think it's a great idea. Um, I was, a lot, of this, a lot of times I was doing more of the professional development work with EdTech Teacher. One of the things that really struck me, I was reading about um, like social cognitive theory and sociocultural theory when I first started my degree. And again, that idea of like, how do we build those models? And so um, started using the idea of purposeful play and setting up experiences where I'd say, okay, you're going to play. I want you to be a student. Don't worry about your class. Don't worry about, you know, your situation. And then having them actually deconstruct my instruction. Like, why did I do what I did? And trying to flip it back and forth so you can start to coach that model. Um, and I think it's hard. A challenge still, and I did find this in my research when I was going through and looking at things, um, is making sure that there's that real pedagogical knowledge. And I think sometimes that's missing. And it's, you know, it's boring to read about learning science and learning theory. Um, like the really like hard stuff is not a fun light read, but right. at the same time, I think to have a deep understanding of how the brain works and how people actually learn. Cause I've had conversations with a lot of leaders where they honestly couldn't take the next step of the conversation. Cause I don't think they really knew. So it was much easier to throw out a term and have everyone nod their heads than to say, well, I'm not really sure what good pedagogy would look like in this situation anyways. Well, it's, isn't, it, isn't it blended or personalized or flipped or, or sure. <laughs> high quality project based? <laughs> of course. Um, you know, there was, um, there was a great article. Uh, it was like a 96 article, Ertmer and Newby, who are these two education psychologists, and they broke down learning theory. So like behaviorism, cognitivism, construction, constructivism based on essential questions. Because the other thing is it's not all or nothing. I mean, there's a balance, but to have, you have to be able to have that fundamental understanding of what right. the theory is. So then you can decide, do you need it or not need it? And, and do, you think, do you think that's why the adjectives are everywhere? Because I, they make it easy? I think it kind of, I think one of the things is, is easy is the best word. Actually, Bruce Dixon wrote this article with you when he went to ISTE, not this year, but last year, like when he walked the vendor floor and right. everybody wanted easy. Right. Well, learning's not easy right. and teaching's not easy. So let's take 
and it's not simple. And so this, honestly, we can trace back to Edward Thorndike. Right. I mean, Thorndike said teachers should do the will of administrators. Like, don't think, just do it. You should be a replaceable cog in the machine. And I think we really need to break that because, and again. That's what, it, that's what we ask of students, though, too, right? Yeah. Students should just, just bend to the will of the teacher and yeah. do whatever the teacher asks, right? Yeah. After this short break, we'll be back with part two of my conversation with Dr. Beth Holland. Hey, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Modern Learners Podcast. If you're listening today, it's likely because you understand that we have a real need for change in our schools and that we owe it to our learners to think differently about what school is and what it can be. Modern Learners Community is the home for global educational leaders who are igniting the movement to fully reimagine the school experience for all learners. If you are someone who is in a position of educational leadership or who someday aspires to be, and you want to surround yourself with others doing this difficult and vital work, we invite you to join us in Modern Learners Community. I'm Lynn Hilt, the Community Manager of MLC, and our Learning Commons will help ensure you're using your professional learning time to the fullest. MLC offers carefully curated content to help you find signal among the noise, thought-provoking questions and discussions with inspiring community members who are serious about change, live events and access to the Modern Learners team, and a circle of critical friends who will help you reimagine the school experience for the learners in your schools. When you become a member of Modern Learners community, you will be challenged, you will be heard, you will question, you will gain clarity, and you will learn. Visit modernlearners.com slash ML community and click subscribe now to request your invitation to MLC. After doing so, we'll be in touch about how you can join in our movement. And we are so confident that you will find incredible value in making MLC your preferred learning destination that we offer a 30 day money back guarantee. Let's create a whole new experience of school together. So you call you call the whole blended, flipped, you know that whole thing. I think you call it symbolic language, right? So yeah, talk a little bit about that and how do we break free of that? Um, so that was another piece that I was looking at when I was going through all of my data. Um, Bowman and Deal, so they have a book on leadership, and they talk about these frames, like lenses through which you analyze stuff. And one of them was this idea of symbolic. So it's like you talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. Mm -hmm. You use words that give you this appearance of doing what you need to do, but you're not really doing the deep change. They called it organizational theater at one point, which I thought was a great way to describe it. It's great. So, you know, you throw all these terms out and you go, yes, we're doing it. Now, I don't want to be disparaging of the term itself because the terms, when the hard work has been done, can serve as that unifying factor. And I mean, one of my favorite districts is Bellevue, Nebraska. And the folks in Bellevue have done a phenomenal job. They will call it their blended learning program through their iPad Academy. And what makes it spectacular, though, is the amount of work they've done over years now. I mean, this has been since 2013, where when they say blended, they mean very specifically that they're following the idea of changing the offering choice of path, place, space, and pace. The entire purpose is so that teachers can build deeper connections with their students. Um, as one of the teachers made a comment, she's like, no child should fall through the cracks in my classroom mm -hmm. because I've made that connection to the student. Everything they do is built around that idea and it's very actionable and concrete. So 
yes, they're using the term blended learning. Great. Could we argue that maybe it's also universal design for learning or personal? Sure. But they have that, it gave them a benchmark that they, more importantly, they all know what it means. And right. I think that's what makes it so great. Yeah. And I think what's, what's interesting about that is, um, you know, I, I'm probably pretty way over on the left when it comes to the way I think about classrooms and learning, giving kids a lot of agency, a lot of choice in terms mm -hmm. of what, not just how. Yep. Most, most schools that I've seen um, will give kids a little bit of choice in terms of the how, but they really mm -hmm. still are curriculum oriented. But, you know, in that case that you just brought up, it, it's like at least there's consistency. At least everybody knows what the, what the role, what, what, what the goal is and mm -hmm. how they're going to achieve it. And I think that one of the problems that, well, my kids experience this, and I think most kids experience this, is just this total inconsistency in schools from classroom to classroom to classroom, mm -hmm. because there is no really coherent, again, no coherent mm -hmm. understanding, no, no culture, really, that's mm -hmm. built around a belief system or, you know, a, a group of outcomes that they really care about. So um, I'd much rather, you know, see schools doing that, even though they may not rise to my bar, <laughs> right? Well, but at least, they, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think the thing that's great about, I mean, they're doing a ton of work. They've got such a phased in program too, where they're building that language. And I think there are classrooms who would definitely hit your bar. And there's those who are admittedly learning, mm -hmm. you know, and it's amazing to see how far they can come in those beginning standpoints. Um, you know, and it's, I was thinking back on this one, there was a, what kind of, it's like all the literature that brought me to kind of where my thinking was. Um, but there was a study they talked about like, why do some systems improve and keep improving? And why do some systems not? And when they talked about how do systems really become excellent, one of the things that was a common like intervention cluster, like what they saw was consistent across all of them, was the systems that moved from great to excellent devoted three or four hours a month just to talking about what makes great leaders. Mm. Like, when does that happen? No, Three to four hours a month. Not talking about like logistics or having a meeting, but a really deep conversation of what does great leadership look like in our school and in our context? And how right. are we going to keep leading change? And again, you're right. Um, you know, one thing that we say too is, you know, time is a choice. And, and the way that we choose to parcel up our day and our weeks and our months I think, um, you know, we can all in schools find some time for those conversations. We just have to, we just have to want them bad enough, badly enough, you know, we just have to privilege them. And, and in many cases, we just let other stuff kind of get in the way of that. Um, oh. uh, just one other piece here that I found really interesting in, in just this little synopsis that you sent, you, you, you wrote that if leaders want to build this language and bring community together in support of learning, um, they need to be part of a professional community built around a set of shared norms and beliefs. So we've kind mm -hmm. of talked about the beliefs a little bit, but mm -hmm. do you think from a norm standpoint, um, in, in what you've seen, are those norms explicit? Are they kind of tacit? I mean, are they things that people come together and, and really agree upon? Or is it just the culture kind of leads them to those places? Um, I think there's both. But I think what really came to it as well is that the norms that I think need to be there or is there needs to be collegial trust. And here's my like most obvious statement. You know, if people don't like each other, they don't talk to each other. If they don't trust each other, they won't share. So if there's no trust and there's no communication and there's no transparency, then that's a major issue. And so right. to build those norms around that, um, 
to have a sense of what they call like collective efficacy. Like, do you actually believe that everyone around you can pull this off? Right. Because if you don't believe it and you don't have that confidence in the people around you, then, you know, you're going to go shut your door and that's going to be the end of it. And so some of those, I think leaders have to work really, really hard to build that. So how do they, how do they do that? I mean, do they model it? Do they just keep saying it over and over and over again? It's a walk the walk versus a talk the talk. And I think that became really like abundantly clear. I mean, I think of certain people I know of who've had like really explicit examples, you know, and it's more than just like, I put my desk in the middle of the hallway so everyone can see me, you know, but how are you really involved in making sure that as leaders that you're modeling the behavior you want to see? Um, they, I read, I read an article. It's really fun. It's called the morphosis paradigm. Um, <laughs> You gotta love researchers. <laughs> the, that was fun. It's kind of interesting to me, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I did. I love the idea of the morphosis paradigm. And they talked about, um, you know, like the caterpillar becomes the butterfly, right? There's this morphosis. So if you want students to ultimately ha- be the, the curious learner, the creative learner, the one that has agency, the entire organization needs to evolve into that. So the teacher needs to model the learning, model the curiosity, model the creativity, which means that the leader has to model the curiosity and everything else. And ultimately, it's this process of morphosis where how do we really start to evolve into what we ultimately want to see in our students? And it brings us back to that learning piece. What do we really want this learning to look like? And then how are we going to demonstrate ourselves as learners? And show that learning's hard, you know, show the ways that we struggle, show the things that, you know, we try to figure out, show that we're reading. Um, I think that's a really important one. And it sounds really dorky. And I know I'm really dorky right now. And I talk in citations, but like I've read a lot. Um, But how do we show that we've read a lot? And how does that then let someone know, well, look, it's okay. We have to all be learners. Um, I always come at that by asking kids, um, you know, how good is your teacher? And teaching and they'll have an answer very quickly <laughs> yeah. good, bad, sideways whatever right but then but then whenever i ask them you know how does your teacher learn they kind of get one of those dog faces you know yeah. they kind of look at you sideways right. what do you mean by that yeah because <laughs> they, they don't see the adults in the room as learners mm-hmm. and i think you know peter senge talks about this a lot obviously yep. of, of, of teaching cultures versus learning cultures mm-hmm. and, and how different they look um so do you think that basically um well, let me ask it this way. Okay. How long do you think it takes for a district that has been pretty much stuck in a traditional narrative for a long, long time? Right. How long do you think it takes for them to get to a point where at least they're operating on a mission and a vision, let's say, mm-hmm. that's built on some foundational beliefs, some, some real understanding of the world, and, and that uh, you know, they're, they're at least trying to move in a direction that's a little bit more student, built around student agency and learning in that way. How long? I mean, is there a, a, a number or <laughs> a does number. it just depend? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I wish I could be like, it takes exactly 20 seconds. <laughs> right. I mean, I a couple of figures that I found. I read, um, I read a case study where they talked about a district that had done just a really profound job, um, really shifting the language, shifting the beliefs. And in this case study, it took three years before they had 85% participation by the teachers. Wow. So, and I actually thought that was pretty successful. 
So three years to 85%. I mean, I think another one is I looked, I spent a lot of time looking at the professional development literature and, you know, people forget about this, but the numbers that they quantified from a report from like 2001 is that it's going to take a teacher 50 to a hundred hours of professional learning before they start to change their practice. And, and I is, would, is, is that most, is that primarily on pedagogy or is it, is it kind of going back and having them think really hard about their beliefs and all that kind of stuff? Or what is it? What's I mean, the breakdown of that? I think it's all of the above. I mean, it's how do you really build in? And when they say professional learning, they, these were the same reports that pretty much like threw out some of that one and done workshop model, but it's got to be that really sustained moving forward. Um, but it's 50 to hundred hours. They just said as a substantial shift in practice. So I would say whichever substantial shift you were looking for, um, because again, we can argue, however, I think this is where it's so tricky. Um, the variability and cultures of schools. Like just because one thing works in one place doesn't mean it's going to work in another place. And right. I think we have to be really okay with that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, you know, um, I looked at places, I look at places like big picture learning, right? So lots of authentic context, lots of like getting out in the community, out in the field. Maybe that's not going to just translate, but again, that noticing piece, what is it about that that will fit in our culture? Right. Um, you know, maybe it's blended. Maybe it's, um, I was in a school where like 30% of our students had learning challenges. So as a school, we really embraced universal design for learning because that, that worked with our students because we had a huge range. So what's your sense in terms of how we have to change our assumptions around the outcomes, right? Because I know that one, one of the things yeah. that you said in that, again, in that um, little synopsis that you sent me was, you know, that maybe, maybe we have to move away from this idea that scores mean everything, mm -hmm. and that uh, they really don't value or scores don't evaluate learning in the way that we want them to. I mean, what are some of the big kind of, those meta <laughs> constructs that we're going to have to push back against in order for us to really move to a place where learning is honored in the ways that we're talking about. I mean, I think there's, there's like three pieces to this. So the first one is I think traditionally the way that we measure things, um, it's what researchers call like the black box. There's an input, it goes into some black box and then there's an output. And typically what happens is we say, okay, the output is the test score. The input is whatever it is that we want to stuff into this box, the new reading program, the technology, the uh, whatever. And nobody actually looks at the box and nobody actually says, well, what is the logic of what happened in that box where this is actually a reasonable output? That's the first challenge. We've always gone with that. And we've just assumed that this was the output with no logic to it. Um, I've, really been interested in improvement science and the work from Brake and Gomez and it's Gruno and LaMahieu. And they talk about how do we start by identifying what we want to see at the end and then going backwards. So what's going to be that observable measure? Um, and I would say too, the, we have to get away from like that history of quantitative measurements. Right. Um, it's really hard too. It's really hard. My favorite saying is you can actually quantitize your qualitative. So, so talk about that. So yeah. if, if you can quantitize curiosity and creativity yeah. and, and persistence and all that sure. stuff. Sure. So this is where like I definitely am a qualitative researcher. Um, so the idea is let's say that we, um, we ultimately we decide we want our outcome is we want our students to feel as if that they had opportunities to be really curious and really creative. Right. 
Okay, so we're going to create this super awesomeness that's going to be the input that goes into it. And then during the whole process of whatever our super awesomeness is, we're going to like talk to kids. Hey, what are you working on? Hey, what questions are you asking? Hey, what are we doing? And we're going to keep track of that. And then maybe there's like an exit conversation where we say, so when you finish up this project, like how did it make you feel as a learner? What kind of a learner do you think you were? And like with little kids, we might scaffold this a little bit. Right. So we've got all of this qualitative information, sound bites and quotes and clips. And then what you do is you go through and you start looking for themes and keywords. So that's how you can then extract and say something like 45% of the students said that they felt as if they were curious learners. Um, you know, 70% of the students thought that they had opportunities to be really creative in ways that they never had before. Because we can pull those sentences out and we can extract those themes. And then based on that, you can apply a number to it. Um, Which sounds amazing, but also sounds really inefficient, right? And uh, it's like it's going to spend, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time that maybe we don't have. I mean, so is there, I mean, I, and I think a lot of people would probably default to some rubric or something. Right. right? trying to get that stuff. Well, so now we've gone back to the, the double-edged sword, right? right? So we're trying to go back and re-institutionalize and fit within that That's existing right. structure. Yeah. You know, it's always that taming. Um, and then, oh, shoot, I had lost my other thought. I can't hold like well, we were No, we were, talking about, we were uh, talking about some of those bigger meta picture constraints. Yeah. Uh, do you think yeah. curriculum, by and large, is a constraint? I mean, to, that, um, that, that maybe we're teaching a whole bunch of stuff that we don't need to teach just in case kids might need it someday? Or? This, I mean, I think that comes back to that greater purpose. And now uh, we can look at all the smart people who are smarter than me, right? So like David Perkins, who says like, what's right. worth learning in school. Um, 90, I think he says 90% of what we currently teach in school is really irrelevant. And, right, it's irrelevant. <laughs> so, so we have to come back and say, well, what's the greater purpose? Um, a professor of mine and I have gone back and forth of what is the value of a shared domain of knowledge? And do we need a shared domain of knowledge so that we understand how to come together as a community? And how wide or how big is that shared domain? And who gets to determine the domain? <laughs> That's right. Um, and this is Seymour Papert's great quote, now that we have access to all of it, what million to 1% are you going to choose? Right. What do we, what do we choose? Who's going to figure it out? Right. How do we teach perspective? You know, how do we value voice? I mean, I think some of those norms we could agree upon, right? Um, we want students to understand how to look around a problem. You know, if we look at something in history, I, I like the American Revolution as an example. Was it the, you know, colonial revolution for independence or was it that group of colonists that rebelled against the monarchy? It right. depends on who you ask. So is it, is it the event? Is that historical event important or the thinking is important? And can we do that? Could we do that thinking around, let's say, I love baseball. Could we find a scenario in baseball where that thinking skill would, or that disposition would be developed? So I think there's... I think there's thinking and dispositions. I think it will come back to some like fundamental questions. And I think those questions may vary in different places, but there is, I'm still wrestling with this with Dr. Berner, but this idea of like, where is that shared domain of knowledge? Because to be creative and to be critical thinkers and to engage in like that adaptive, to build that adaptive expertise and engage in the divergent thinking, all those things, you still have to have a fundamental knowledge base. Um, I'll go back to like Ulrich Kraft. He's like, you know, real creativity is, you know, moving the blocks in infinite ways, but you better understand that block. 
So do we need to understand something? I worked with a great social studies teacher who taught American history and his entire driving question for the whole year is what does it mean to be a society born from revolution? And he started from there. How do we respond to historical events? What is the impact of history on decision-making today? How did it form our culture? And I think from there, yeah, he, I mean, he had a pretty random set of events that they studied, right. but they built the skills and the knowledge and understood the historical thinking so that then if they needed to understand something else, they could think about it. Right. And um, I would guess, I'm guessing probably kids had some choice in that in terms of the events that they wanted to think about and talk about. And yeah. I think that that's a, obviously that's a much better question than how are we going to get through this curriculum in 18 weeks? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and um, make sure everybody passes the test at the end, right? Which is, yeah. which is the motivator for a lot of people, understandably so, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily... Um, throwing those people under the bus, but it would be great if we all came at it with a larger question that kids could find some way to attach to. Yeah. When, um, when Jay McTie and Grant Wiggins book came out about the essential questions, yeah. I saw Jay present at ASCD and I love the way he shut up an entire auditorium. And he said, because there was a teacher who was saying, Oh, this is great. Fine with the essential questions, but I have to get through the curriculum and the standards. And Jay said that that was like the greatest cop out of the public school teacher. <laughs> And he just shut down the room. And he said, look, your job is to say, I have these essential questions and they're like the umbrella and they have to hold all of the rest of these you know, standards and content areas and curriculum pieces to have them make sense and have that coherence to your student. And he says, don't tell me about, you know, the standards and the curriculum. If you have a really good question and you can engage in inquiry, they're going to be able to get through all of that curriculum. And I feel like only Jay could say that to like 300 people. Yeah, right. Um, right. I wonder the extent to which, and you know, as we kind of bring this to a close, but mm -hmm. I, I wonder the extent to which we give kids the choice on what questions to pursue. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bruce, you know, Bruce has a great uh, phrase that, that uh, he kind of threw at me a few years ago where he said, well, why, why isn't curriculum strategy? You know, why isn't it something that we pull at the moment that some, a, a child needs it to answer a question or to get us, you know, find, go further down the road with something that they're interested in learning. So mm -hmm. can we give kids that choice that they can be their questions that they want to, that they want to enter any conversation with when it comes to curriculum or not? Wait, without a <laughs> question? Um. <laughs> Well, these are the big ones, right? And, I know. And, 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 you know, almost just before you answer that, almost every conversation around this all gets to this point, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, I think curriculum is a huge barrier to change. I mean, I mean, I see it as the way we think about it now. Um, it is a bunch of stuff that we have to get through, even though kids aren't interested in it, even though they're not going to remember most of it. And, and we kind of sometimes use that excuse and say, well, they need to know this because they're, you know, they're going to be, they have to build upon it to be a good citizen or they may need a job. Or, mm -hmm. And I struggle with that mightily because of how much stuff I forgot very quickly when I was in school that didn't really make any difference to me. So... How much, how much choice do we give kids at the end of the day in this conversation? Well, I think there's always that balance, right? Because you don't, like I just had this conversation the other day. When I started my doctoral studies, I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. Now, at least I know what I don't know. But it was your question. Right. But I, yeah, I did have this question. Well, at first I didn't know. Like I couldn't <laughs> even ask the question, right? Like I just didn't know what I didn't know. And so right. someone else gave me a prescribed curriculum and said, you have to go through this. Now, within that curriculum, I had a ton of choice. 
And then I got to ask my own questions. Like I asked my own research questions, which I think is maybe the way we need to think about it. We're going to give you that. Again, you have to have that domain of knowledge of something so you can ask a question. Um, just as a super concrete example, I have a friend who teaches calculus and I guess it was like seven or eight years ago, I guess the AP changed the curriculum. And I remember in June, he was just really angry and he's like, I can't believe they want us to slog through like all this calculus stuff. And he spent the entire summer like studying the new curriculum. And finally, I remember in August, he hit a point where he's like, I have a plan. I say that there were 15 units. I can't, I don't know anything about the curriculum. Okay. There were 15 things they were supposed to do. He's like, that's completely impossible. If we do eight of these things really, really well, right. and I really teach them how to think about it, in the last two weeks, we'll cram and we'll just solve this AP issue. Yeah. And so the kids went really, really deep on the eight. And then they crammed in the last two weeks. And he was like, yeah, there were no difference in my scores. And yet we were all less stressed. And so I think sometimes it's about rethinking when are we playing the game of the test and when are we actually teaching right. that really deep learning and what they need to know. Which goes back to, again, you know, what our commitments to kids are, what our values are, you know, mm -hmm. how we see ourselves as learners, how we, how we walk that talk, everything that, you know, we've just kind of been talking about. Well, listen, Beth, I have to say that that was just a fascinating <laughs> 45 minutes. <laughs> it was fun. Thank you. I could keep talking about it for a long, long time. Sure. Great conversation. Thanks so Thanks much for, for having me. They really appreciate it. And uh, good luck with your work moving forward. Thanks a lot. Thank you all.